The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. All right. Well, uh, we have finished a year-long or 11-month uh, process of going through uh, Hebrews. It's been amazing. It's been awesome. In fact, I love how I've heard that some of you who have started coming into the church in the last couple of months when we were kind of wrapping up Hebrews, you've said to me that you've gone back and you started you know, at the beginning in the podcast and you've caught up because you, you wanted to be a part of the whole deal. And it's so cool to hear. On September 13th, we're going to start a brand new fall series called The Hurt and the Healer. We'll talk more about that uh, next week and then, of course, on the 13th when we get to it. But today and next week, we're going to take two weeks to talk about a, a, a simple but yet you know, very uh, difficult concept, idea, teaching from the New Testament. In fact, this is one of the things that I think is the clear, it's, it's crystal clear out of Scripture, but for whatever reason, it's just so, such mass confusion in our Christian conversations. Hopefully you got the email on Friday. If you don't get an email on Friday, go to our website and you sign up to be on our mailing list to get, you know, information about the things that are going on. But as you saw in the email Friday, what we're going to talk about today and next week is this idea, and there's a little image here on the screen, of sin and the new covenant. Sin and the new covenant. There's a little image that's going to be on the screen right here. My hocus pocus, bada boom. There it is, man. My fingers are warm up. All right. Um, so, uh, sin and the new covenant. And this is how we're going to introduce this idea. Hopefully this works. It makes sense in my mind. Sometimes my mind and reality are not two things that work together. We're going to talk about pet peeves for a second. Anybody got pet peeve? Pet peeves out there? We all have pet peeves. You know, uh, Rachel's hand went up really quick. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Uh, but there's, there's pet, we all have pet peeves. All right. I want you to help me out here. This is a little crowd participation. Don't, don't shout out anything, you know. Uh, just think it mentally for a second. Um, fill, finish this little phrase. I hate it. Think about your peppies. I hate it when fill, fill in the blank, all right? Just, just think to yourself. I hate it when, all right? We all have pet peeves. I'll share a couple of mine real quick. I hate it when uh, we get the kids, we get them all bathed, everybody's clean. We put them into bed. In the middle of the night, we hear somebody puking in their bed. I hate that. Not, I mean, if, if, if puking in bed's one thing, but we just had bath time. And bath time at the Davis house is just crazy. I know we've talked about that before. I got to move on before my blood pressure goes up. It's just crazy time, bath time. We have a systems issue, I know. Um, or, or when we finally get everybody ready to come you know, to church or whatever, we're, we're, we get everybody out, and then the baby decides to spit up all over my freshly ironed shirt. You know those Sundays when I come in with a shirt that's not quite you know, as freshly ironed as usual? You know what now why that's the case, because there was uh, stuff added to my attire that I could not continue on. Um, I hate it when I get into the car, I'm already running late, that's it, and the gas tank is empty, and now I'm going to be even more late, later, more late, whatever that is. I, hate, I don't know why, but I hate it when Gwen, our four-year-old, asks me to cut the crust off of her peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know why. Is it a wasteful thing? I don't know. Uh, I just, I'm like, why? Why am I cutting crust off and throwing half the sandwich away? I just don't get it. I don't understand. We all have pet peeves. We all have I hate it wins. We're the wives in the room. Any wives out there? Any wives in the room? All right. Here's your chance. Here's your time. Look, I, I, I know, if, you know, I know not every wife is the same, but I, I know you hate it when 
we trim our beards and shave our faces just after, ba- just after the bathroom was cleaned, right? Is that true? You hate that sort of stuff? I'm freshly shaved, right? I gave Jim a hard time. I said, Jim, you need to shave, you know, for next week. And Patsy said, no, 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 no. His little goatee is covering up way too much ugly for him to shave his, his face. <laughs> but you, you hate these things, right? Didn't you, Patsy? Didn't you say that? She did. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Ladies, you hate it when we as husbands, we say, hey, I'll be home in five minutes, or I'll be off work in five minutes, and you know that that's going to end up being what? Like 30 minutes. You hate that, don't you? Let me let, me, let, me let you into a little window here. You know that same five minutes that we say will take us to, to wrap up work? That's the same five minutes that you say will take you to get ready to go somewhere. So it's, it, it all averages out, you know, in the end. Husbands, here's your chance, right? Husbands? We hate it when, that's right, we don't hate a single thing about our wives. They are perfect. They are awesome. They are wonderful. They are in every way possible, except for one thing. We hate it when we're comfortable in our beds at night and we hear the following, how in the world are you always so warm? I am always so cold. We hate that because we know what's coming next. Ice-cold bricks that you call feet end up on our backs, on our legs, between our legs, whatever, and it's like liquid nitrogen just got pumped into the bed somehow. In case you were wondering, we don't like that. We don't like that. As parents, we hate it when we tell our kids the same to do something over and over and over, and they don't do it. We hate that. We hate it. We hate it when we, at work, we... We spend so much time working on a project that we know our boss will never even look at, but we have to do it. We hate it. We're potty training toddlers, and we spend 30 minutes patiently with them on the potty trying to get them to go. They don't. We put their diaper on, and they fill it up. We hate that stuff. Pet peeves, we hate it. I remember as a teenager, we're all the teenagers. We've got teenagers here. I remember as a teenager, we would take a test, and I'd fill out the answers, and I thought, you know, I think a different answer is the correct answer, and i change it only to find out that the original answer was the correct answer. Man, I hated that. I hated that. We could go on and on. We could list out pet peeves all morning long. We all have them, and they're all, they come in all short shapes and sizes. But what if God had a pet peeve? I'm not saying he does. What do you think it would be? I mean, I... Listen, I'm not suggesting he does. Let's just imagine for a second. What, what, what would a pet peeve of God's be? We know what ours are. Some of us might say, oh, I'm sure it's a pet peeve when we sin. Well, m- maybe, but, you know, God saw everything that was going to happen before he said, let there be. So I'm pretty sure that when you and I sin, he's not surprised because he already saw it thousands in eternity past. He already knew. In fact, we learned in Hebrews that even our record of sin has been wiped from his remembrance by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to throw a thought out there for us to chew on for a second. And it's up on the screen. If you have your Bible notes going, you can go into the Bible app or just the URL, bibleapp.lifejourneyva.com. If God had a pet peeve, and I'm not suggesting he does, we're just trying to get our minds wrapped around something real quick. If God had a pet peeve, we got a spelling error there. I think that somewhere, sorry about that, 
I think that somewhere on the list would be when people, namely Christians, pull a single verse out of the Bible with no respect, no regard to the context, context surrounding that verse and end up teaching something that is completely opposite of what God has actually done in Jesus. If God had, I'm not saying he has a pet peeve, but if he did, man, wouldn't that be somewhere on the list? I'm going to read it again. If God had a pet peeve, I think it somewhere on the list of his pet peeves has to be when a people, namely Christians, pull a single verse out of the Bible with no regards to the context surrounding that verse and end up teaching something that is completely opposite from what God has done in Christ Jesus. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody pull a verse out of context and just teach it without regard to the verses that surround it? I don't know why they do. I know why I did. I have done this for almost 30 years because I pay more attention to what men and women say than what the Scriptures actually say. I'd listen to what influential people would say about something, and I would just take what they say and run with it instead of actually examining Scripture for what Scripture actually teaches. Listen, this is the recipe for disaster. Do not ever simply take my word, Ricky's word, Jim's word, anybody who ever stands behind this pulpit, I guess, don't ever take our word for something for just because we said it. Always, always examine whatever anybody says by the truth of the Scriptures. The same Holy Spirit that's in me is the same Holy Spirit that's in you. His job is to guide you into all truth. See, our disaster, our failure, is when we just hear somebody say something and then we just regurgitate it without even thinking about it. Don't ever do that. Because if you do that, even though we have, I would say, the correct message, we're on the right path, if you will, in regards to the gospel. Look, if you just do that, if you just take what we say here and just regurgitate it without really thinking and examining yourself, you're doing this the same thing that we always have done. And I'm saying don't do that. Well, as you probably guessed, we're going to take a look at Scripture today that, in my opinion, is kind of the poster child for verses that have been taken out of context and end up teaching something that is exactly opposite of what Jesus has actually done or what God has actually done in Jesus. has to do with sin, sin and the new covenant. That's our theme today and next Sunday. So I'm going to go ahead and read it on the screen. And it is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You may be very familiar with this verse. I am very familiar. This is what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We may look at this verse and we say, hey, what's the big deal with this? Well, listen, this verse has been labeled by Christians, and again, me for some 30 years, as the, as the Christian's bar of soap, meaning whenever we sin in our daily life, we get away by ourselves and we confess that sin to God, and then God forgives us of that sin. If we confess our sin, then he forgives us of our sin. But if we don't confess our sins, well, he doesn't forgive us of our sins. In fact, the majority of preaching, again, for me, up until about three years ago, 
ended with this single thought. Listen, Christians, if you Christians have not listed your sins before God that you've done as a Christian, then God's not forgiving you. He hasn't forgiven you of these sins. And so you need to end a service with an altar and say, hey, how many things do you need to get right with God today? As you know, April and I, we were in Fredericksburg last weekend, and we had a great time away, and we went to a church that meant they got so many things going for them, their systems, their guest relations. I mean, it is just a well-oiled machine. In fact, the preaching was really, really awesome. He's talking about grace alone, the, the Jesus, his blood that washes away all of our sins. I was like tracking with him. And at the very end, right before the end, he said, quote, if you sin this week, it's okay. Just ask God to forgive you, and he will. And it just rolled naturally off of his lips, and it just rolled naturally into our ears. So what's the problem with this? Why isn't 1 John 1, 9 some sort of bar of soap for the Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning that we have left talking about. And, and we actually have points, you know, one point and two point. Here's the one that's already up on the screen. If we take 1 John 1, 9 to mean that every time we sin, that particular sin is held against us until we ask for forgiveness, number one, these are in the Bible app if you want to follow along there, we suddenly have major inconsistencies with the rest of the New Testament. It, so if we take 1 John 1, 9 to say that once we sin, that sin is now held against us until we you know, get f- further forgiveness, we suddenly have major inconsistencies with the rest of the New Testament. No other apostle, no apostle, no apostle wrote letters during the, what we have as the New Testament to even suggest that this is the way it works, that we're forgiven on a continual basis when we ask to be forgiven. In fact, the New Testament teaching is exactly the opposite. We have been forgiven, past, present, and future. And I just have a few verses up here. They're in your Bible app if you want to have you know, them for future reference. But here they are, just a few of them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees that were against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. And if you notice, for you, you know, grammar Greeks, like I love to be, having forgiven us of all, that is a past tense concept. He has forgiven us of all. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says, in him, we're going to talk about this a lot in two weeks, but in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is, this is Ephesians 1. Uh, verse 7 and 8. There we go. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, uh, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So our forgiveness is in accordance to the riches of his grace. How rich is God in his grace? You answer that question, and that tells you how forgiven you are, because your forgiveness is in accordance to the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ Jesus has forgiven you. 
Present tense, future tense, what? No. Past tense. Past tense. Hebrews, we just finished Hebrews, and there's like tons of verses in Hebrews. We're only going to look at two. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. When he had made, past tense, purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How many of us believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? You can raise your hand. How many really believe that? Really believe? If you believe that, then you have to believe that he has made purification for sins. You can't have him sitting and there's still sins to be forgiven. You see that? Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26, 27, and 28. It's up on the screen. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die in the face judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to what? Sin. But to those who eagerly await his return. When Jesus comes a second time, do you realize that he will come with no reference to sin? How many of us have lived our lives so worried about when Jesus comes back, our sins are going to be held against us? How many, I mean, so many of us. I know I did for years. But what the Scriptures is saying, that he came the first time to deal with sins, i.e. the cross, and the second time he comes, he will come with no reference to sin. His second coming, no reference. Why? Because his first coming was to deal with sin, and he dealt with it sufficiently. So hopefully, and there's so many more verses, we're going to stop here for time's sake. Hopefully you're seeing a pattern in the New Covenant, the New Testament, that's teaching that our sins, past, present, and future, they are all forgiven, removed, canceled, taken away by one single act of Jesus Christ. But maybe John knew something that the other apostles didn't know, right? Maybe John was writing this letter, if we confess our sins then we, he forgives us of them. Maybe he's writing that to correct all the other apostles. I've heard that before. Well, maybe. But if that's the case, then why would John, in the very exact same book, 1 John, write these verses? 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Same book, 1 John. I'm writing this to you, little children, because your sins, what? Have been forgiven. For whose sake are your sins forgiven? Look at that. For his sake. I mean, he hasn't even forgiven your sins for your sake. He's forgiven them for his sake. And if he's done it for his sake, do you think he did it kind of halfway or all the way? Check that out. It's amazing. But there's more. First John chapter 5, verse uh, 3. I mean, chapter 3, verse 5. I have problems with numbers every now and then. You know that he appeared in order to what? Take away sin. So John's not confused at all. Sounds like to me that John is saying in these same verses the same thing that the rest of the New Covenant apostles are teaching. In the New Covenant, you are forgiven. Well, what if you're not in the New Covenant? Ooh, you're not yet forgiven because forgiveness is found in Christ. So if you're in Christ, guess what? You are forgiven. That's what it means to be in the covenant. But if you're not in the covenant, then you're not forgiven. So, if we take 1 John 1, 9 to mean that God holds our sins against us until we ask for him to forgive us of our sins, then we are creating 
astronomical compromises and, and issues, inconsistencies with the rest of the New Testament writers. There's a second thing. We're only going to look at two things. One, inconsistency with the rest of the New Testament writers. Secondly, here's a second point. We have two points today. If we take 1 John 1, 9 to mean that every time we sin, that sin is held, us, held against us until we ask for it to be forgiven. Number two, we miss God's view of sin. We miss his real view of sin, and we miss God's real remedy for sin. You see, if we sin and God still holds that sin against us, and it just merely creates some sort of you know, tension in our fellowship with God, then we're rewriting scriptures and we're missing God's real view of sin. There's only one consequence for sin, only one. Does anybody know what it is before we even throw up on the screen? You, you guys are brilliant. Death. Here it is. Romans 6.23, the wages, the consequence, the judgment of sin is death. Do you see that? The consequence is death. God's view of sin is really, really simple. If he holds your sin, my sin, against us in any way, the judgment is death, not distance. The judgment is termination, not tension in our fellowship. Because that's what we've all, I've always heard, that he's still my father, I'm still his son. There's still a relationship, but now there's tension. There's, there's distance. He's turned his face against me until I come back to him because he's counting my sins against him. Look, let's don't water down the truth of scriptures. The scriptures is saying that the wages of sin is death. God told this to Adam and Eve. He said, the day that you sin, you will what? Die. They died spiritually that day, and years later, they died physically as a result of their sin. So if we think as believers that God is holding our sins against us in any sort of way until we confess them and, 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 and you know, say that we're sorry for them, then we must also believe that the judgment is death, not a little bit of distance, not a little bit of tension, but rather termination. But who took our termination for us? Who took our death for us? You see it? Jesus. Jesus took it. He died. Jesus died. He died because our sin, all of them, every last one was counted against him. See, Jesus didn't die as a martyr for some cause. He died because the judgment of sin is death, and God put all your sin and mine on Jesus, and he crushed his son, therefore crushing our sin debt. So God's remedy for sin, for, for this judgment, which is death, was to take our sins and put them on Jesus, and his judgment against our sin was exercised. His remedy was to take our death and give it to his son so that he could take his son's life and then give it to us. That's the exchanged life that we now have. So if we believe that God is holding our sins against us in any way, then look, we're missing God's remedy for sin. We're missing the glory of what Jesus has actually done. 
I mean, think about it. If, Jesus, if God is holding our sins against us in any way, and a simple, you know, God, I, I'm sorry for this. Please forgive me for this. And that takes care of our sin debt. Then why in the world did Jesus die? Why in the world did he bleed if, if our words of apologies can just take away sin? Look, it's not our apologies that take away sin. It's blood that's required. We talked about this in Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. God requires blood, not apologies. Now, is it bad to apologize? Of course not. But let's never equate our forgiveness with our, our apologies. We equate our forgiveness with one thing, the blood of Jesus. So if we take 1 John 1, 9 to suggest that every time we sin, God holds our sins against us until we ask for forgiveness. Look, we miss God's real view of sin. His judgment against sin is death. And we miss his real remedy, which is the death of Jesus so that we could have life. So let's throw 1 John 1, 9 back up here. So what do we do with this then? If we confess our sins... He is then faithful and just or faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, in our few minutes we have remaining, I think we can do one of three things. We can, one, and this is in your Bible notes, we can toss this up to some sort of 2,000-year-old discrepancy and join in the crowd that seeks to discredit the Scriptures. Some of the Scriptures says this, some Scriptures say this, and so there's discrepancies. I don't advise to do that. Number two, we could do some sort of mental gymnastics routine and suggest they're both true. We are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, but we're forgiven of our sins on a daily basis when we ask for forgiveness. Some sort of mental gymnastic routine and get into some sort of mental pretzel in our brain. I don't advise to do that either, but that's what I did for 30-some-odd years. Or three, we can look at the entirety of 1 John chapter 1 and see this one verse, verse 9, in the context of the entire chapter. And this, unfortunately, is what so few people do when it comes to this verse. And I think it would be a good idea to do that. So here's how we're going to wrap up. I'm going to read. I'm not even going to preach First John chapter 1. I'm just going to read it to you. I'll throw in a couple comments, make sure we're all on the same page. But I'm just going to read it to you, and I want you to come to your own conclusion of is, is, is this teaching that every single day we need to create a list of the things we did yesterday and ask God to forgive us of all of our sins so that we get forgiveness, which, again, is in total contradictory to the rest of the New Testament, the New Covenant. You come to your own conclusion. Don't let me make up your mind for you. Chapter 1, verse 1, because that's where chapters begin. You got it up there, Drew? Here it is. This is the very beginning of the book, First John. I'm just going to read it. I'll throw in some comments. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Do you see already in this, these first two verses a we, an us, and a you? 
You see this already? We've seen it. We've touched it. We've been there. We were there, and we are now proclaiming it to you. Do you see that we, you thing? All right. What's going on here is John was the first century, and this idea, this, this teaching we call Gnosticism today, it's this teaching that the flesh is wicked and the spirit is good. Therefore, Jesus could not have been flesh because if he was flesh, then he would not still be good. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, God, took on flesh, became 100% man so that he could die on a Roman cross for the remission of our sins. If Jesus did not become man, you got to throw the entire gospel away. So John is writing this letter to these people who believe this, saying, look, we've touched it. You see that? He says, we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've touched him with our hands. You can't touch a ghost with your hands. A hologram, you can't touch with your hands. Verse 3, I told you I wouldn't preach it, sorry. What we have seen and heard, okay, we've seen, heard, we've touched, we proclaim to you, we, you. See that? It's important. So that you may have fellowship with us. So whoever you is right here, this, it's not us. We have fellowship. You don't. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write so that our joy may be complete. He's saying, we want you to get in on what we got. We got fellowship with Jesus, with God, because of our faith and what he's done. You don't have that. You need to get where we are. Our joy will be fulfilled if you buy into what we're teaching here. You see this? This is very important because verse 9 is coming up. Verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and we announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Man, we could camp out there forever because where are we now? We are placed in him. So what does that mean now in our new human spirit? There's no darkness. Yeah, sin lives in our flesh, but not in the human spirit that we've been created new with. If we say we have fellowship with him, but yet walk in the darkness, meaning if we say that we're with God, but yet we're still in Adam, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, that is, if we're in Christ, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another Look at this, verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Isn't that crazy? I mean, two verses before this famous verse 9, he says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. If the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, then how many sins are left that aren't cleansed? I'm not very good at math, but I can do that one. And now here's verse 8, 9, and 10. So we want you to have what we got. But this whole idea of, of you not being sin, able to sin because you know, you're of the Spirit and not of the flesh, all this sort of stuff, you've got to do the way with that. Now look at verse nine, 8, 9, and 10. If we say we have no sin, would John the disciple, the apostle, would he say that he has never sinned? No way. But yet he's saying, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is the truth of Jesus in John? I hope so. Why else are we reading his letter 2,000 years later? We should read, you know, 
popular mechanic or something on Sunday morning, not, not the scriptures, not John. So he, is he saying that he's never sinned and the truth isn't him? No, no, no. He, he's saying that if anyone, any human being, we, if, if anyone says they have not sinned, the truth is not in him. Verse 9, but there's hope. There's hope. Verse 9, if we confess, that word confess, Greek, homologeo, which just simply means to say the same thing, to agree. If we agree that we have sins, if we agree that we are guilty and in need of Jesus, if we agree that our guilt has caused death, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? If any human being agreed that they have sinned and that Jesus is able to do something about it, God forgives them of all. Isn't that? It's just crazy to me. I know I'm kind of putting my cards out there, but it's so crazy to me that this is used, this verse 9 is used as a Christian's bar of soap to clean themselves up. Because even in this verse, it says when we confess, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess that we have sinned, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, then how much unrighteousness is left to be cleansed? You see that? It's crazy what we've done with this verse. Verse 10, the last little bit. If we say that we have not sinned, again, would John say that he's not sinned? He says we here. No, no, he's talking about anybody. If anybody says we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Is John's mission to make Jesus out as a liar? No, he's saying if anyone says that they do not have sin on their account, they make themselves out to be a liar. John's not saying he's never sinned. Of course he's sinned. He's saying you have to agree that you've sinned in order to be forgiven of sins. So why does he say we here? You know, I I really think it's like the captain of a football team who gives their all every single down. Football season's coming up. Hallelujah. Every single down, they give their all. I mean, they never take a playoff. I love those guys. Never take a playoff. And he gets in the pregame huddle, and he says to his 10 teammates, he says, guys, come on, we have got to give it our all today. Is he, is he concerned about whether or not he's going to give his all? No, no, he's talking about those who aren't going to give their all. You see that? We do that all the time. So what's our conclusion? Do you think that 1 John 1, 9 is teaching that we are forgiven of our sins only when we list them off one by one? Is this even a big deal? Why have we taken an entire Sunday morning to talk about this? Is it worthy of our discussion this morning? And we're going to talk a little bit about it next week. Look, guys, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. For whatever reason, we're missing God's true view of sin and God's amazing remedy for sin if we think that he still holds our sins against us in any sort of way. Our view of Jesus and what he's done... It's totally off if we think that we, by firing up some prayers, gain forgiveness for sins. Look, it's not our apologies that are required for the forgiveness of sins, except um, uh, 
there's no remission for sin unless there's blood. Jesus bled. You believe. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. Our band's going to come up, and we're going to wrap up this morning with our journey marker. And it just, it's very simple. No sort of nice, you know, rhyme or anything today. It's just simple. In the new covenant, we are forgiven. Do you see what I did there? I said we. But what do you, where do you have to be in order to be forgiven? You have to be in the covenant. So if you're in the covenant, then you're forgiven of all your sin. In the new covenant, sin is no longer counted against you because it's already been counted against Jesus. Our forgiveness isn't based on our memory, on our level of sorrow, or even on our asking. Our forgiveness is based on the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sin. So what do you do with this? Many people hear this, and their first thought is, what foolishness. If people are forgiven of even their future sins, then they're just going to go out and sin all the more in the future. Well, that's an important, valid point. We talk about all the time when we go to Romans 6. But you know what I say to those who ask that or say that? I say, well, okay. So how are you doing with the quantity of your future sins under your system that you have to fire up prayers in order to get forgiven of them? Are are you sinning less? To which we all say, well, no. So having some sort of God in a swivel chair where he turns away from us until we do something to get back to him, that doesn't cause us to sin less. It perverts our understanding of what Jesus actually has done. Here's the awesome truth. Sin, yes, it still lives in our flesh. The desires of sin are set against us. But by trusting in Jesus, we have died to sin and have been raised to new life in God. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is no longer our master. Sure, we get stupid. We choose to sin on occasion. At least I do. But we have died to it. It is no longer our master. What do you think would happen in your life if you had a growing awareness that you have died to sin and it is no longer your master. What would happen? The appeal of sin becomes less and less. When you see that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross to suffer and die, when you see that it was your sin and the judgment for your sin that caused the very death of your Savior, when you see that, and you see that you've been freed from it, you've died to it, that you're now a raised new, joined to God who is holy, 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 as we sang earlier. When our minds are set on these things, sin loses its appeal. Look, make no bones about it. Sin is bad. It will wreck your marriage. It will wreck your career. It'll wreck your family. Your kids will leave home. The dog won't even come back. Sin is no good. It will never take you where you want to go. But listen, because of Jesus and what he's done, sin is no longer counted against you by God. Your wife may count it against you, your kids, your boss, but God will never count against you what he's already counted against 
his son once and for all. So look, the revelation of our perfect and forever forgiveness of all of our sin, it does not drive us to more sin. It drives us to worship the God of the universe who loves us and gave himself for us. When we consider our complete forgiveness, look, we don't look to go out and steal. We look to go out and share. When we see just how forgiven we are and how righteous we've been made, we don't look to go out and lie. We go and look to speak the truth as we're seeking to do today. We don't look to be selfish. We look to give. True Christianity is not leaving religion and falling into sinful living. True Christianity is leaving religion and falling into Jesus. And maybe this morning you need to trust in Jesus for the very first time in your life. As I said earlier, forgiveness is found only in one place, and that place, that person, is Jesus. You must trust in him. But listen, if you do, if this morning you do trust in Jesus for your rightness with God, then you are forgiven. Period. Don't say, but what about? (laughs) To say, thank you, Jesus. Now, you got to work things out with your wife or your kids or whatever. Sure. I'm not talking you're forgiven from each other. We're talking about God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for what you've given us. And Father, as we just sing this final song this morning before we head out, I just pray, Father, that you would remind us that we have been raised to life. And in this new life in Christ, our, our sins, even the ones we do today, are no longer counted against us. Because of the blood of Jesus, we've entered into a covenant that is based upon him, not our behavior, but him. And you have freely given us your righteousness. So, Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory, the grandeur of what you have done. If there's anybody here today who is struggling in sin, God, I pray they come back next week because we see next week, how do we, how do we grow out of this stuff that we've died to? But Father, I just pray this morning, if there's anyone who does not trust in you, that today they would trust in you because there's only one place that we can find forgiveness for sins, and that's in Jesus. Thank you for raising us to life. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if God has any pet peeves. Please don't think that I do. Think that I don't know, all right? But let's just be a church that doesn't compromise the integrity of Scripture, okay? Let's be very careful not to take a verse out of context and miss the beauty of what Jesus has actually done. In the new covenant, we are forgiven. It's just that simple. So what do we do when somebody, even ourselves, is caught in all sorts of sin? A Christian, habitual sin, self-destructive behavior. What do we do? Come back next week because that's what we're going to talk about next week in our second little part of sin and the new covenant. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.